As you guys know, like I said, Pastor Jeff is on his way back, and last week we were really blessed with Brian Thiessen teaching us. Um, this week I want to call our special guest up and have him come up here. Um, I'm going to introduce him. Come on up, Raleigh. Okay. Um, for one, like I told first service, I'm really excited because Raleigh is a friend of mine, um, but he's been more than that. He's a mentor. Uh, this is Dr. Raleigh Galgan. He's senior pastor of Valley Church for years. He's now retired from that position. But um, so I have people that have a doctorate that I hang out with. That makes me feel way smarter, you know. And, uh, but no, Raleigh has walked with this church kind of since we were planted. I mean, we were a plant from Valley while he was a senior pastor down there. And then through some transitions we've gone through and stuff like that. And But he has been a mentor in my life. He's met with me, you know, continuously through really hard times and through really good times. And um, a lot of the reason that I stand here following the ministry I feel God's called me to is his fault. So um, <laughs> if you have an issue with that, blame it on yeah. him. So anyway, let me pray for you. Yeah. Raleigh, I'm, I just... This guy is involved in so much, and he's going to share some of that about what's going on. But it's what God is doing through him, you know, and the work that's being done that I believe he brings some amazing insights to us this morning. So I'm setting him up. So anyway, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Raleigh. God, I thank you for what you've done in and through him. I thank you for the legacy that's been built within Solano County and beyond uh, because of the work you've done through him and the fact that he said, here I am, God, use me. Um, God, I pray that you would use him as your mouthpiece again this morning and anoint what he's saying. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are open. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Phil. What a, what a privilege to be a part of somebody's life who God is using in the kingdom like Phil and, and Angela. I really, what a, what a blessing. Yeah, I remember when uh, Living Hope kicked off. It was 9-11, the weekend of 9-11. It was a pretty significant weekend, uh, that the first Sunday. Um, it's really an honor to be here and to share with you. I'm now a volunteer pastor. I have office space at Starbucks and Pete's. Okay, that's what I do. Uh, I work with a lot of other churches, and it's so good to share the Word of God. The Scriptures, if you ever read Ecclesiastes, summertime's a good time to read Ecclesiastes. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, God is, you know, everything under the sun is a theme of that. And uh, there's so many, get a perspective of life before you head into the fall and school and work. Just sit back and reflect. One passage there that's often read at weddings, it reminds us, how blessed it is when we have others in our lives to help us by giving us a hand up. And like I said, it's used in weddings. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man, woman, who falls and has no one to help him up. Now, obviously, you can see how that applies in marriage, but you know what applies in life? You know what? Have you ever experienced, I haven't, in my own life, I've experienced it in the lives of the others, but when you have no influence, you have no advocates in your life, you have no voice, no one listens to you, you have no friend, you have no family that surrounds you, you have no resources to help you when you fall down to get back up. This includes those globally, like Living Hope reaches out to all the time. I mean, you're reaching out to people that don't have someone to give them a hand up. When you go to places in Jesus' name, like 
when Pastor Jeff and the team come back from India, they're giving a hand up in the name of Jesus. When you go to Mexico or you, when you guys go to Papua New Guinea or you go to Central America or when you do medical or humanitarian trips like the YWAM teams that go into Australia, you, you meet these people. When you go to New Zealand and Nepal and China and Mexico and, and also in Korea, you've met them and you are giving a hand up in the name of Jesus. But this not only is a global thing, it includes those things that you do at Living Hope here locally. When, when you reach out to those caught up in sex trafficking in Northern California, there are women trapped and they have no resources, no voice, no one to give them a hand up and you are reaching out to them. It also includes the young adults who were living in Dixon and still are in Dixon or in Solana County surrounding who were at high risk for drugs and high risk for crime, but instead, through the ministry of Living Hope and through the ministry of Impact, some of those young adults' now lives have been transformed and they're even in this congregation and serving at this church. And those ministries were sponsored by Living Hope and carried out through Pastor Phil and his sweet wife, Angela, who gave it all for the kingdom because they were giving a hand up to those young adults. But this includes also locally, there's a lot of yet-to-be people that need a hand up. Like 15% of the Dixon population who live below the poverty line of $24,000. They don't have the resources. They don't have someone that is going to lift them up unless it's you or me. Or some of the 25% of Dixon's population who earn less than $40,000 may find themselves one paycheck away from the street. And certainly, it describes those less than 25 persons who call Dixon their home who own nothing, except maybe the backpack on their back or what's in their shopping cart, and are homeless. Now, I'm not evaluating, and no way am I judging why a person finds themselves marginalized, because that's the word we used in life without someone to give them a hand up. And I'm not looking for pity for the homeless as victims, since many of the homeless are there because they're experiencing some natural or logical consequences from the choices they've made, from the actions that they've taken, from the lifelines, yeah, they have literally rejected, and from the bridges that they themselves burned down. Also, I'm not saying that there hasn't been some injustice that put people in precarious life situations, because certainly there has been. Here's my point. My point isn't how people got where they are. Since I don't see God in the Scriptures trying to determine who does or who doesn't deserve compassion when He calls us as faith followers to stand in the gap for others. There was a pastor in the 1990s, he wrote a book, but out of that one book came one line that has stuck with me my whole life since then. And he said this, God is at work around us, and he will invite us to join him. He's always at work, 
But there will be times when he reaches out to us individually and his spirit invites us to join him in what he is doing, not what we are going to do. So here's a question. God is at work in Dixon. And if he invites you, would you consider standing in the gap for those that are marginalized in your community? I want us to pray and invite the Spirit of God to join us here. Would you pray with me? Father, may the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And may they be prophetic today. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, God has always searched for those who will stand in the gaps. You know what? It's a metaphor, stand in the gaps. That is, there's a break in the line. Stuff is leaking through. People are falling through the cracks, all that. And God wants his church to stand in the gap. It's not a new thing. It's an old thing, and it's a thing that goes all through the Bible. In the book of Ezekiel, God was looking for people to stand in the gap, and he asked Ezekiel to do it. Read with me. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy, and they have oppressed the sojourner without justice. And I searched for a man among them who would what? Build up a wall to protect them and stand in the gap before me for the land. Would you consider that? If the Spirit of God were to invite you, that's my question. You see, the first father of faith, Abraham, was a man of faith, but he was a man that stood in the gap for others. That's what made him probably such a great leader and why people were willing to follow him, because he was willing to stand in the gap and give a hand up to those that needed it. I want to share two incidences when he did that. The first time Abraham showed compassion... It was towards the city of Sodom, and he did it at his own expense, and he did it at risk of his own well-being. You see, if you recall early Genesis, Abraham was called from Mesopotamia, which is between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, what we now know as Iraq, and he was called to Palestine or Canaan, what we now know as Israel and Palestine. And he came there. And uh, his nephew Lot came with him, and Lot settled in the area of Sodom. His family, along with others who lived in the Sodom area, had been attacked. And they were all taken hostages, along with all their possessions. Abraham heard about it, and he mounted an army, and he went and he rescued all the captives, not just his relatives, but all the people of Sodom. And Gomorrah. And he did it to get nothing in return. He only wanted God to be glorified. Here's how it's described in Genesis 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his positions and also the women and all the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Shader Lormer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. 
The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me, and you can take all the goods for yourself as bounty. I have sworn to the Lord, but Abraham, he responded to the king, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I won't take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abraham rich. And I'll take nothing except what the young men have eaten. He said, I'm not going to take anything from you because I want God to get the glory and not you. That was the first time. The second time Abraham showed compassion towards Sodom, he interceded on their behalf on the sake of biblical justice. Regardless of what was going on in Sodom's world and some of the excessive sinfulness that was going on there, here's the context. In Genesis 12, God had promised to Abraham that through his seed, the nations would be blessed. Now, Sodom had had no children. I mean, excuse me, Abraham had no children. And so he didn't know how his going to have seed that was going to build this great nation. And so in Genesis 18, Abraham was visited by three angels. And they were God's messengers, and they brought the message that this time next year, your wife will have a child. Now, Sarah was in her mid-90s, and she was barren, and she was listening in, and she literally laughed as she heard that message. Now, you know her son Isaac means the son of laughter because God did carry it through. And then the angels, after they had delivered the message, they were ready to leave. And they got up and they began to head south. And it's true in the Middle East, you always accompany your guest away from your home till they're a place of safety. And so we read in the scripture that the angels rose up from there. They looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said to the angels, with Abraham listening, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Should I share with Abraham what I am doing? And then the Lord, in verse 20, said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, then I'll know. The men turned away, that is, the men that were angels manifesting themselves in human bodies, and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham said to him, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people who are righteous in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing. That's not who you are. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And then if you've read the story, Abraham was so bold to begin to negotiate with God. Well, what about 40? Well, what about 30? Well, what about 20? And they went on and on until finally they get down. And Moses, I mean, and and Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And then he said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Well, what if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
So Abraham was willing to stand up, and if you know anything about Sodom, it wasn't that really of a godly of a place, but he was willing to stand in the gap because it wasn't about whether they deserved it or not. It was about whether God was going to show mercy, and Abraham was going to stand in the gap for these people that needed intercession. Here's the question. Would you stand in the gap for Sodom? Would you stand in the gap for those in the community that need a hand up if God were to invite you? Our Lord Jesus always stood in the gap, didn't he? For those who were marginalized by the world, if you were to go do a survey in the streets of Dixon and ask people what they knew about Jesus, one of the things that they would talk about that just came to well, he was always standing there, and he was always there for those that needed him, especially those who were marginalized in society. Matthew 9 tells us, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, because those were the marginalized people, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And isn't that exactly what the world expects from followers of Jesus? That's what your friends would say. Well, if you're a Christian, then you would do this, and you would do that, and you would reach out, and you would help those that need justice. You would help those that are marginalized in in society. That's what it means to show the unconditional love of God. And don't we all have a little prodigal DNA in our souls? Aren't we the ones sometimes that need a hand up? If you, if you do stand in the gap, you'll have influence. I can tell you that. You'll have credibility in a hostile environment for the gospel. That's not to say you're right or wrong, but the world will look at you and they will see something in you that they believe that is something of Christ in you for love never fails. Historian Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he wrote and he documented this. He said, the quality of mercy, which is compassion, played a major role in the growth of early Christianity in the Roman Empire. You ever think about, how did this story out of a little village in Jerusalem travel through the Middle East into Asia Minor, all the way across the AGNC, into Greece, all the way in to Rome. How did the gospel get there? Two ways. One was through miracles, when people saw the power of the gospel and the power of miracles. The second was the power of love. It was the love of Jesus and the love of Christians. When you read what happened in Rome and you see history, it was that when the plagues came, the Christians were on the streets scooping up the relatives that were thrown out by their family, taking them into their homes, risking the plague themselves, and watching God do miracles and bring many of them back to life. Love is powerful. There may come a day... I saw that you guys saw the movie, The Greatest Showman. And wasn't it cool? It was very emotional and very moving when P.T. Barnum was at his lowest in life. 
And remember, everybody was rejecting him, turning against him. I think he was suicidal. But who came to his rescue? All those people that the world had walked by before stood up to sing his praise because he had demonstrated to them the power of unconditional love. You see, when Jesus' disciples considered their commission to be Jesus' witnesses after his ascension, this is how they saw their role. They saw themselves as leaders over people, telling people what to do, where to go, how to do it. But Jesus corrected that, didn't he? And he made it very clear. If you're going to be my disciples, he called them to what? To be servants of others, to bend the knee, to take up the towel, to wash people's feet, because Jesus knew the power of love. So here's the question. I know that God is at work in your community, and I believe that he will invite his followers to join him, and when he does, would you consider at least pray about it, about standing in the gap for those that are marginalized in your community? You see, Jesus affirms those followers for standing in the gap. Matthew 25, here's what he said about those who are willing to stand in the gap. He said, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, what? You looked after me. I was in prison, you visited me. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Because love never fails. So God is at work. I know he is. And he will invite you to join him where he is at work. And you need to listen to the Spirit, and then you need to decide whether you are willing to stand in the gap for those that are marginalized in your community. You see, God has called us at Valley, and I was at Valley for 40 years as the lead pastor, excuse me, 30 years as the lead pastor, 10 years as an associate, and now I'm Pastor Emeritus. But I just want to just tell you a little bit on how God moves, and I'm going to give you a quick backstory. You see, all my adult life, I thought Sodom's destruction was God's judgment because of their sexual sin of immorality. And uh, we saw in verse 20 that God said he was going to destroy it. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. And you know, I always put in what that sin was. I, I also preached it from the pulpit. That is until Hurricane Katrina came in 2006 down in New Orleans. You see, we at Valley, like many of you and around the community, sent finances and human resources to help in the recovery and the construction of property and the lives that were totally devastated in New Orleans, and still some are in recovery. New Orleans, one of our sister churches, the Trinity Evangelical Church, was right there in New Orleans. They opened their church. And every Sunday afternoon, they would tear down the chairs like here, and we would move in from across the nation, and we would put our sleeping bags out, and that would be our base camp. And we would eat there, and we would sleep there, and then in the morning, we'd get up, 
And tens, uh, you know, thousands to tens of thousands of people came there and did what we did. And every day we would get up, we would have our breakfast, we would receive our work orders for the day, and then we would get our tools and our material and we'd be sent out. But before that, we'd have a devotion. And one of those mornings that I was there, someone shared something that stunned me from the Word of God that I had read many, many, many times. They, sh- they shared there was a lack of compassion in Sodom. And that is why God took Sodom out. Now that morning I had eyes to see and ears to hear for the first time from the Scriptures the reason why God judged Sodom. Listen. He's talking to Israel. Your older sister was Samaria, which is north, with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lived in the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. And you not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but you, in your ways, soon became more depraved than they. And as surely as I live, declares the Lord Sovereign, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now, this, is what, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and the needy. Rather, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. I was stunned. You see, with the Scripture, even though I had read the Bible, I don't know how many times, and Ezekiel 16 was one of my go-to references whenever I preached on 1 Peter 3. Whenever I taught on it, I would go read how God adorns a woman. I never saw it. Or at least, it never registered in my mind. Why? Probably because I was so bigoted. I was so prejudiced. I was really judgmental towards Sodom. I never saw it. I always had this preconceived idea on why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. I've since recanted publicly of my judgmental spirit. But I I do understand still the inspired, infallible, and errant biblical description of human sexuality that is ordained by God is still between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. But my belief hasn't changed. But my ministry in Jesus' name has. You see, I don't look at people now and see gender. I don't see race. I don't see color. I don't see your socioeconomical status. Rather, I just see souls. Souls that Jesus died on a cross so he could offer his unconditional redemptive love. And as a church, we at Valley felt called by God through our experience at Katrina and that eye-awakening moment that it was a lack of compassion that God judged Sodom for, and I'm sure he will judge his church for, that we decided that we were going to stand in the gap. And we were going to extend the compassion of Christ to those that had need. And we felt compelled by God's word that says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, 
to love mercy or compassion, and to walk humbly before God. You do that in the name of Jesus, and you're cool. You're cool. So we came back from Katrina in 2006, and we began a compassion ministry. Locally, we began to do projects for the elderly, the widows, the sick, the single mothers, the low-income family. We began to reach out nationally. We went globally. We sent teams all over, like you, all over the world. We sent teams in disaster recovery, building places where disasters had experienced, like tornadoes and floods and fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, and even tsunamis. We were there. We were there. And uh, here's the question. Are you willing to stand in the gap if God were to send you? God invited our church, and then he invited the church of Vacaville. Not just Valley, but all of a sudden the church of Vacaville. We began to realize that God wanted us as a community of churches to stand in the gap. And in the 1990s, there was a men's movement. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember that. It was called what? Promise Keepers. Men from all over the nation would gather, and they'd go, and they'd hear the best preachers, and the Spirit of God was moving, and yeah, there were some results as they came back home. And in 1996, the Atlanta, Georgia Dome opened it up for pastors from around America. So thousands and thousands and ten thousands filled the dome in Atlanta City. And we went there, and the theme was breaking down the walls, breaking down the walls of prejudice, breaking down the walls of bigotry, baking down the walls of jealousy among churches. And we went and we came back, the pastors from Vacaville. We gathered at Trinity Baptist Church and God was speaking to us that we needed to gather together and we needed to break down the walls. At that time, there was a lot of competition. There was a lot of comparison of churches and you would down another church to make you feel good about your church. And it just wasn't healthy. And we got together and we said, way to break down walls is to pray together. And we began to pray together, believing that where believers pray together and dwell in unity, God is in the midst. And we wanted God to come into our city. And about the same time as we began to pray together and see the walls begin to break down, our city council declared something that is really unusual. They declared that Vacaville was to be called a place of peace. You know how prophetic that is? Google it. There's only one other city that I know of in the globe that would be called a place of peace. Jerusalem. And of course, there is no peace there, but that's prophetically the way that God described Jerusalem in the Hebrew. It's a place of peace. Vacaville dared call itself a place of peace. They put pins they wore around. I have a pin, Vacaville, Place of Peace. They put it on our webpage, on our logo, a Place of Peace. When you used to drive down I-80 from Dixon to Vacaville by Kaiser Permanente, remember it? There was a sign there, and you would see Vacaville, a Place of Peace. Now, if you understand spiritual warfare as we did in the 90s, we knew that was a target. How dare you call yourself a Place of Peace? So we began to pray as pastors, as churches. We prayed that Vacaville would be a place of peace. Now let me fast forward about 20 years to May of 2014. 
Every year we gather for our National Day of Prayer on the first Thursday of May. We invite all the leaders from Solana County. They mostly all come, your chief, your council, your council members. They all come, and we pray for our county. We pray for our leaders. We ask them to stand up and tell us, how can we pray? And then we have a pastor or a minister pray for them. Our supervisor, John Vasquez, stood up that day, and at 6, it was early in the morning, and he said he wanted prayer because the spreading of crime from the Bay Area was moving down the I-80 corridor. And then right after he spoke, the chief of police from Vacaville stood up and echoed the same sentiments that crime was on the rise in the city of Vacaville. I left that gathering with a burden. And I was hoping that the Vacaville Christian Ministerial would lead the way and rise up and begin praying to keep Vacaville a place of peace. Because I knew from the word that was a place to start, was to pray for your city, because that's why we gathered for the National Day of Prayer, where Timothy tells us, I urge then that first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may what? Live a peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So after that day in the morning, I got a call from a man who heads up and is a director of the Leaven. And uh, Mark called me, and it's one of the name tags I wear now. I wear a lot of name tags. Can't remember my name, so I put this on. I'm 70, you know. And uh, if you've never heard of the Leaven, there's 25 Leaven sites up and down the state of California. We have about 18 in Solano County. And uh, what it is, it's a tutoring center. A tutoring center in low-income, high-crime apartment complexes. And I knew a little bit about the Leaven, but I didn't know that much. But God, in His timing, brought Mark into my life, and I began to realize this is one avenue, one step that God can use to lower the crime in our city. And so not only did we pray, but we met together with the city manager and the chief of police, and we began to launch in Vacaville the first permanent Levin site in December of 2014. It took a whole year at 1501 Alamo Drive, the Alamo Apartments, we were given a burned-out unit. It was bad. It had been sitting for seven years, Unit 58. And through the ministry of local construction people and, donor, and donors, we were able to see Unit 58 into a beautiful tutoring site for the 183 apartments in that complex. And after the first year, 2016, crime was cut 55%. The reason we picked it was because the chief of police looked at his map where he used to get all the calls. He said, that's where we get the most calls. That's the highest crime area. That's where we need to lower the crime and give the kids an opportunity. And so we went in there and KCR, KCRA did a report because it works. Because you give kids the hope and the opportunity for education and you share the love of Christ and at the same time their hope penetrates the community, and the whole community just rose like leaven and unleavened bread. The second thing that happened in the fall of 2014 was the Vacaville Homeless Roundtable began meeting again after being suspended in 2008 after 
the economic crisis because they had no money to do anything. But we began to meet again under the leadership of Chief Carly, our chief of police. And we gathered, we gathered last Wednesday, the, all the Vacaville PD crew, we have county agencies, we have city government agencies, we have nonprofits, we have faith-based, your city uh, uh, Dixon people come, and we sit there and we are trying to solve the homeless issue. And uh, out of that gathering, the first time I met, I sensed there was a gap. There's a gap between the homeless on the streets and all the resources that I saw that were available to help give them a hand up, but it wasn't getting to them. And so we began to recruit from the churches and train volunteers to fill the gap by building trusting relationships, which was lacking, in order to assist our homeless neighbors to discover the available resources so that they could find a better way. So we had 24 navigators, and we began to nurture relationships with our homeless neighbors. We, had a soup, we have a soup kitchen that opens two times at Epiphany Church, noon to two on Tuesdays and four to six on Fridays. And eight churches provide hot meals, and we as navigators, we wrap services around, and we hang out, and we build relationships. And we tell them, when you're ready, we'll, we want a hand up, we'll give it to you. And we found that we deepened the relationships, especially in the winter months, because 10 other churches hosted our homeless for nomadic sheltering in the months of January and February. We had the relationship started, but then we hung out with them for 8 to 10 weeks every morning, every night. You knew everything about every homeless person in our community. And they began to share their lives, and we began to see outcomes. Over the last three years, we've been fortunate working through the county, the city, the PD, the navigators, the churches. We have seen a drop of our homeless from 120 in 2015 down to under 60 this last January. Amen. But we also discovered their faith. We, 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 we heard their faith stories. We saw many come to Christ. And during our sheltering, they were getting baptized in the churches before they eat their meal and before they put their sleeping bags out and spend the night on the church floor like this. You see, but most important, our homeless neighbors and our community saw the love of Christ. They saw it in action. We knew their names. Chief Carly went this last summer to a national gathering in Philadelphia of 19,000 chief of police. And Vacaville was featured as to what God is allowing to happen in our community. And so a lot of the police officers came and said, well, what do you think is making the difference? Well, first of all, relationships. But he summed it up in this one thing. He said, we know the names of our homeless people. That stunned. Stunned every chief. You know their names. Not only do we know their names, we know their stories because they trust us and we have a relationship. You see, there was an ancient friar in the first millennium. His name was Francis Assisi. And he said this, 
Preach the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. You understand what that means? Let your actions speak for themselves. So God's at work. I know He is. If He invites you, would you consider standing in the gap? Pray about it for those that are marginalized in your community. Standing in the gap doesn't mean everyone's on the front lines. You may serve behind the scenes. You've got gifts. You've got talents. You've got resources. God will direct you how to fill the gap. For others, it may mean in some manner leaving your comfort zone, living among the marginalized, listening to their stories. Just don't give them a handout. Listen to their stories. Love them without strings. They're not going to get off the street the first time. They're not going to let you give them a hand up the first time. It may be two, three, four times you coming back. Do you really care if I don't take the hand the first time? Maybe it'll be with the homeless, working with there's a better way navigators. Maybe it'll be tutoring the kids in the low income, the high risk apartment comps like Lincoln Creek or Bristol apartments as brand new 11 sites. Maybe. Maybe it'll be delivering meals on wheels for the elderly and the shut-in. Maybe it'll be navigating illegal immigrants through the system for citizenship, which we do do because they come to us because they're low income and they come to the soup kitchen. Maybe it'll be engaging with young adults before they crash on opioids and die in the streets, and they are. I saw my first person OD on opioids this winter when we were sheltering, she was as stiff as a board and her legs were elevated like that and her back was elevated like that. You know, we do that exercise sometimes to train for football and there she was as stiff as a board. So I called Sergeant Kellis from the crew. I said, what do I do? He said, let me call the ambulance. Called the ambulance within three minutes. There were more police and ambulance than I can ever imagine and they gave her the shot and saved her life. But there are kids that are there. It takes a relationship. I mean, will you be the hands and feet of Jesus? Walk humbly to demonstrate God's love and mercy. That's all he requires. Maybe it's a burden that you have. And God wants to give you a vision to do something about his name. Maybe it's just you see something nobody else sees, and that's a burden. That's where visions start. Bob Pierce was the founder of World Vision also the founder of Samaritan's Purse. He had this one burden, and this is all he ever prayed. He prayed this, Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. That's all he prayed. And out of that came world vision and Samaritan's Purse. Remember this, share the compassion of Christ, and when necessary, use words. Let me pray for you, can I? God, I pray that your word is prophetic today. That you would raise up your church to continue to do what living hopers have done. Be ready to give a hand up for those that have fallen down. For those that don't have the resources, don't have the family, don't have the friends, don't have someone that loves them unconditionally. God, I pray that you would, through your spirit, 
not a gun ho I'm going to go get it done, but through the quiet voice of the still small spirit, you would speak into the hearts of every individual and clearly, clearly show them. And where you guide them, you would provide for them. So I ask it in your name, Lord, and for your sake, that as your disciples, we may go and your love will never fail. In Jesus' name, amen.